This is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Narkarni. For centuries, monarch butterflies have drawn attention from biologists, conservationists, and the public. Their remarkable migrations cover thousands of miles from North America to their overwintering sites in forests of Mexico. But their numbers have been declining sharply, which biologists have attributed to loss of natural habitat and the use of chemicals for agriculture. But a new study reveals that a parasite, a microorganism nicknamed OE, is infecting monarch caterpillars and killing adult butterflies. A team of researchers from Emory University has woven a tapestry of evidence that documents the negative effects of this parasite. They've also suggested that some conservation practices, like rearing monarch butterflies and outplanting way stations of milkweed in high densities, may in part be responsible for the rise in infections and the decline of these amazing insects. Our guest today, Anya Majewska, is the lead author of the study. She's an ecologist and postdoctoral scholar at Emory University. Anya, welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, Anya, your recent article in the Journal of Animal Ecology about the effects of a protozoan parasite on monarch butterflies is, was just fascinating to me. Could you give us just a little background about these amazing insects? I mean, I think many of us are aware of the sort of the general monarch butterfly story, but could you review for us the dynamics of these populations, where they start, where they go, and what they need? Sure. Um, so monarchs are best known for their long-distance migration. If we consider North America, and in particular thinking about Eastern North America, monarchs utilize milkweed. They lay their eggs on milkweed. And in the summer, that's when we see eggs and caterpillars. Um, and when the fall comes around, monarchs get the signal that it's time to move on because winter's coming and it's time to migrate. They migrate as far north as Canada, all the way down to Mexico to overwintering sites. And that is why they spend their winter huddled together in big clusters on OML trees. And uh, they stay there until the spring when they are starting to make their way up north again. In successive generations, they make their way up north all the way back to Canada. Wow, that's amazing. Especially that, that multi-generational thing is really remarkable, I think, that, you know, it's new for these new, these new butterflies that, that haven't actually been where they are migrating towards before. So I think that's incredible. You know, I've seen these several of these small groupings of monarchs in Southern California. And that was amazing to me to see these these hanging butterflies. But I've never been to Mexico. And I was wondering if you could give us a sort of a visual description about the image of these many, many, many monarchs. Can you, can you describe it like when you walk into those areas of overwintering sites in Mexico? The site in Mexico is incredible. And um, well, it is in a, in a high mountain forest, so you have to kind of hike up to a place. And you seem, you know, you, you, you're waking your way up, you're hiking up through the forest, and there's just seemingly just trees everywhere. And as you're going up, suddenly you'll look up and see that there are what almost look like kind of heavy clouds hanging on the trees. And those are actually millions of monarchs that are hanging out together uh, in these big clusters, and uh, they stay there. Um, there is a microclimate situation that they that helps them survive. Um, and on a sunny day, 
uh, if a ray of sunshine hits a cluster, they explode like confetti. And it is the most beautiful sight to see uh, because they fly all around. They'll, they'll fly down. They'll fly around you. It is absolutely beautiful. Um, I highly recommend it if, if that's something that you could do to, to make your journey to uh, see those colonies yourself. Wow, that sounds amazing. I want to go there and see and experience those butterflies. But, you know, in addition to this sort of awe that, you, that you've expressed in seeing them, as well as their beauty, I'm wondering what some of the ecological values of these monarchs have. What, what, do they, what roles do they play? Why are they important? Why, are, why should we care about them? Sure. So monarchs absolutely play, um, you know, multiple roles. Uh, we often think of monarchs as pollinators. They are, I think, particularly important for long distance pollination in in the during their migratory season, and they are food for other critters. So there are plenty of invertebrates that consume the caterpillars in the summer, that consume the adults as well. And even in these overwintering sites, there are lots of small mammals and birds that consume the butterflies. And so they are part of the ecology of the habitats that they use. Um, and so there are many roles that they play within those ecosystems. Got it. Thank you for describing that. Um, we'll talk about parasites in just a moment, but historically, what, what have been the threats that, have, that, that people have considered are, are harmful to monarchs in terms of agriculture or herbicides or land use? Can you, can you describe some of those historical threats? Absolutely. So, so monarchs utilize milkweed for reproduction, as I mentioned. And so they lay eggs on milkweed. And milkweed, as its name indicates, is a weed. So it, it tends to grow pretty much everywhere. And in the Midwest, it used to grow on the prairies and a lot of those prairies ended up um, being turned into crop fields and historically the you know farmer would kind of chop down the the milkweed at some point but it would grow back and then uh, roundup ready corn and soybean came around and the farmers were able to spray the herbicide, and the milkweed very much disappeared from the landscape. So there was this huge loss of milkweed habitat in the Midwest for monarchs. And that is one of the uh, concerns that we've had, that monarchs have lost so much of their reproductive habitat with uh, Roundup Ready uh, herbicides and Roundup Ready soy and corn beans. Got it. Okay. Well, that sounds pretty general. And we'll talk a little more specifics about the parasite that you guys have studied. But let's get to the paper itself. Um, one of the things I really loved about your study was the way that you and your colleagues mustered evidence from multiple disciplines with different approaches, different experiences to get to the answer to your questions. Um, I was wondering how you assembled your team, which come from different departments. How, how, how did you get that collaborative team together? Yeah, so the, the team made up um, scientists from University of Georgia and from Emory University. And uh, the University of Georgia scientists uh, consisted of, of scientists that have been doing monarch research for quite a long time, including Dr. Sonia Altizer and Andy Davis. Um, I had the pleasure of working with them as a graduate student when I was 
uh, doing my research there uh, several years ago. So we had an existing relationship um, in, in those terms. So when it came to thinking about the monarch and the parasite, I knew exactly who we were going to be talking to. And uh, we were you know, thinking this would be a really great uh, project to, uh, to do together. Got it. So previous collaborations led to this current collaboration. Exactly. Got yes. it. Fantastic. You know, another really great aspect about your study is that it draws on long-term data, you know, that you had 50 years of data collection that preceded and contributed to your understanding of the system. And I think that's an especially long time span for a study about insects. So I was wondering if you could sort of describe how you got access to such a long data set. And I, I noted that you use data of Lincoln Brower, who I know as the sort of the grand master, the grand old man of, of monarch biology research. So, so tell us about how you got access to this long, long-term data set. Yeah, absolutely. So most of the data was collected by scientists, including the collaborators on this paper. Uh, Dr. Sonia Altizer has been collecting data since her doctoral research. And this, some of the data was published in papers here and there, but most of it was uh, really sitting um, on her computer waiting to be used for <laughs> a bigger purpose. Got it. Um, and it was on many different files that had to be put together and that itself took quite a long time. And so the 60,000 butterflies sampled uh, was really lots of different files that were, that have been archived and um, I put together to create this big data set. I see. That is fantastic. And I know that is no small job working with other people's data, with archived data, with historical data. So that in itself is just a super duper accomplishment, I believe. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, Let's now get to this parasite, this what we call OE. Can you describe the parasite and how it acts and what level of infection exists, how it how it operates on these caterpillars and butterflies? Sure. So the, the parasite, we call it OE, Ophryocystis electroscara. It's a protozoan parasite, and it's transmitted when an infected adult spreads some of those spores onto milkweed. A caterpillar will eat the milkweed and uh, this parasite spore um, and the capsule sort of that the, the parasite is in, the spore, once it's inside the gut of the caterpillar, it opens up. And that is where the parasite itself is actually replicating and causing damage. So throughout the development of the caterpillar through the pupa, um, particularly during the pupa, that is when the damage is occurring. And the butterfly emerges with millions of spores on its body. And the debilitating effects can be kind of minor or they can be very severe, depending on the parasite strain itself. And then also how many of those spores the caterpillar ingested. So if the caterpillar ingested a bunch of those spores, the infection is going to be very intense and the likelihood that that butterfly flies away is very low. So they can be deformed butterflies that are just unable to fly. Um, or the butterfly can appear more or less okay, but it doesn't live as long. It has a hard time fighting a mate. If, if it's a female, she's not laying as many eggs. 
And overall, um, they don't fly as well either. So there's been uh, numerous studies now showing how debilitating the parasite is. And overall, it, we do know that it, it does harm the butterfly. And on the population level, it can impact uh, the population size as well. Got it. So there's really a dosage effect that is small dosage, not as severe, strong dose, high dosage could be very severe. Exactly. You know, it's funny, for some reason, I don't think about parasites or pathogens as being important for insect populations. But I guess there are many other insects that we might be familiar with that are negatively affected by parasites. Can you describe any other insects that we might be familiar with that, that do sustain damage from from a protozoan or from a bacteria that we might be familiar with? Absolutely. I think most folks might be familiar with the honeybee. And the, the honeybee we, we know is a, a victim to the varroa mite. Um, and the varroa mite transmits a virus. And honeybee colonies, we've known now for a while, have been struggling and, and beekeepers have been struggling. But there are indeed lots of parasites that... Um, wildlife have. Um, bumblebees can also get uh, parasites when they are um, nectaring from flowers. Um, some of those are more sort of digestive um, uh, concerning parasites. But overall, um, every wildlife animal out there has some kind of a parasite or pathogen. Um, and though butterflies are beautiful and they, they seem like they are healthy and pristine, they they are not necessarily. Got it. So I'll think about that more when I look at butterflies and bees that, that they too are subject to parasites and pathogens. Um, I'm wondering if you could summarize your findings and especially what surprised you about the results of your study? Yeah, it was uh, quite a surprise for us because when we looked at that, those five decades worth of data going back to the 1980s to present, and we looked at the entire continent, we, we saw that the parasite level on average was about 10%. And that was overall surprising because we historically thought that the prevalence, uh, the proportion of infected butterflies was pretty low. Historically, particularly when thinking about the eastern part of the United States, 5% of monarchs infected um, was already kind of high. And so to see the data with 10%, that was kind of a, a, a shocker. Um, and then when we looked at the parasite prevalence over time, in the eastern United States, we saw that infection prevalence before the 2000s was very low. And on average, it was about 3%. And then after the 2000s, it just kind of exploded. And it, it, it reached high levels. Some years we saw even 15% of monarchs infected. Um, and so this really begs a question as to what has caused this big jump in infection prevalence? Why are we seeing that high, num high numbers all of a sudden? And did you come to any conclusions or suggestions about what might have caused this steep rise very quickly in terms of the percentage of infected butterflies? Yeah, so we uh, considered several different factors that may be impacting 
the parasite on the population level. And we thought about this in terms of thinking about the transmission of, of the parasite and the monarch. So we considered temperature as an effect. We considered the number of butterflies in the landscape as an effect. Also how green the landscape may be. Um, that is a proxy for us of how many plants there may be out there available for monarchs to nectar and to uh, utilize for reproduction. And then we also considered the length of the breeding season or how long that summer essentially is when they when they can breed. And the, the thing that came up out of the that statistical modeling was that it was the number of monarchs in the landscape. So we think what might be happening is that because there is a reduced amount of milkweed out there, monarchs are potentially crowding in what is available in those pockets of habitats where there is milkweed. And when we have more monarchs in a particular spot, the probability of transmission of the parasite increases, right? And if there's anything we learned from COVID, uh, was that we need to social distance. And for monarchs, it is very much the same thing. Monarchs need to be spread out um, over the landscape, uh, utilizing different milkweeds. And um, that is what keeps the population healthy. So in a way, it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that planting milkweed and, and rearing up these monarch butterflies in captivity under crowded conditions, under high density conditions, might actually be having the opposite effect in terms of wanting to conserve these amazing insects. Is that kind of what the suggestion is in terms of the practice of creating way stations with, with milkweed sort of crowded together and then rearing up these, these uh, adult butterflies? Yeah, so particularly when we are bringing monarch caterpillars uh, into the you know into our house and rearing a whole bunch of them on the milkweed that we may be gathering from our garden that is when we uh, have a lot of monarchs in a small amount of space and if there is one milkweed that we use that has those parasites now all of those caterpillars will become infected so that that is the the crowding effect there and also when it comes to gardens, if the monarch has nowhere else to go but that one garden with a whole bunch of milkweed, it's going to lay all its eggs there and all of the other monarchs are going to come there too. And I've personally seen this in my garden um, and I live in Athens, Georgia, and my garden is the only one in the neighborhood. And when there's a female, she comes around, she lays one egg, she goes away, she comes back, she lays another egg, and she continues throughout the day because she has nowhere else to go to lay her eggs. Wow. Well, now I want to talk to you about an activity that, that my lab is doing. We're working with um, incarcerated youth. We're bringing science lectures and conservation projects to youth who are incarcerated. And one project is, is that these, these young people are growing milkweed for conservation of monarch butterflies. And these milkweeds that they're growing are being set out as way stations in the broader community. So given your results, um, is that something that we should keep doing? Is that gonna be helping monarch butterflies or is that, or should we disperse these plants as widely as we can? What would be your recommendation for a sort of hands-on action plan to really do a, a better job of, of butterfly conservation? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think that uh, growing native milkweed is great. And I do think that we need to have lots of these stations around, right, for them to actually work in the way that we intend them to work, which is to to provide habitat and to boost the population. And so if we have, a, you know, if every neighborhood has several of these um, spots, that's great. If it is the only one, then that's when we can kind of run into trouble with crowding. Um, but I do want to say that overall, we, we, we can also think about preserving and conserving natural habitats and natural areas that, um, or maybe restoring areas that were previously, um, you know, a, a field, but now it's been abandoned and maybe we can restore some of that and plant milkweed there. Okay. Um, you know, in one of your earlier interviews, I, I read that you said each butterfly is only as heavy as a paper clip, but they can fly so far and they are incredibly resilient. And I'm wondering what you mean by resilient, since they are subject to this parasite and they're subject to being, you know, prey items for all of these other invertebrates and vertebrates. Do you think that these guys are resilient? Do they, do they, can they come back? when they're exposed to dangers and, and, and negative, negative pressures? Yeah, I do think so. I, I think it's a, an insect that is resilient in the sense that it can you know, lay eggs and use the milkweed pretty much anywhere. It could be in my garden or it could be in Chicago in the city. It, it's very resilient in that sense that it's not bothered so much by um, urbanization per se, it can fly this incredibly long distance. And um, I think that um, it, it could uh, come back in the population numbers if, if it has the right conditions. And, you know, a single female can lay 300 eggs. Um, and so a single female, it really has the potential to you know, contribute to the population. And of course, the more healthy females we have, the better, because we do want to keep the genetic diversity high as well. I think that for me, um, you know, I've seen monarchs, monarch caterpillars in, in the weirdest places on a milkweed, you know, on a, on, by a curb. It, they can, they're fine with that. I see. Great. Thanks. You know, and I know that the National Science Foundation, as well as other agencies, require that their investigators describe and act on what they call the broader impacts or the societal impacts of their research. And I was wondering what you proposed and what you carried out as your broader impacts for this project. Yeah, so the broader impacts for us as a group in particular, considering all the collaborators, is... uh, outreach, uh, number one. So every year, there are several outreach events that we do within our communities. For example, the University of Georgia, I know, is very active in an event called Insectival, in which we go and we show the caterpillars, the plants. Um, We talk to folks about the parasite and what it looks like and how we can sample the monarchs for the parasite. It's really easy. All you have to do is take a clear sticker and press it on the abdomen, put it on an index card and look under the microscope. Uh, so we, we demonstrate how, how that can be done. Um, there are several times a year we have school visits. And of course, with COVID, it has been some of those activities have been um, 
put on hold. Um, but outreach is very big part of, of what we do and, and continue doing. Excellent. Well, it's certainly a great topic for people of all ages and of all kinds, I think, to, to learn about these, these incredible creatures. And if you're interested in finding out more about that, about about Anya's work, you can go to her website at Emory University and just Google her and find her other publications. And I see that your publications include an amazing range of topics from dog parasites to growing pollinator gardens to your meta-analysis of parasites and wildlife, bird reproductive biology and physiology. It's really an amazingly wide range of expertise. And so I'm wondering, you know, all of these areas that you've worked in uh, could take you in many different directions, but I'm curious to know what is next for you? Sure. So I am wrapping up my postdoctoral fellowship at Emory, and I will be moving on to a faculty position at the University of Georgia. Fantastic. Back to your old homestead. That's fantastic. Anya, thank you so much for this fascinating piece of scientific research and your helping us better understand the implications and the processes by which you and your research team put this together. We all wish you the best for your work in the future, and we thank you again for your time with this interview. Thanks, Anya. Thank you so much, and thank you for your interest in our research. You bet. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>